listening to the weekly podcast of Bethel Bible Church and Pastor Mark Kirkendall. We're so glad you've joined us today. And as always, you can find more information about the church at our website, BethelBible.com. You can find us on Facebook and even follow us on Twitter at Bethel Bible. Let's join Sunday service now. Well, welcome to Bethel Bible Church. If you're uh, visiting here, uh, don't worry. This is not how it is every Sunday morning. You, you, you'll you get to hear uh, Mark next week. It is, uh, Mark, that was, that was ridiculous, but thank you. Um, it, it is such a, I'm telling you, I am overwhelmed to be here. It is, this is, um, I've been looking forward to this. We put it on the calendar at the end of last year. And uh, actually, I was trying to come last week, but he wouldn't let me come last week because y'all were doing baptisms. And um, so anyways, I get to be here this week, and I'm, I'm thrilled about it. I am thrilled um, at what uh, this uh, part of our body, Bethel Bible Church, um, how you guys are shining a light uh, right here in White House. It is absolutely amazing, and it is the, uh, it's the talk of the town. And Mark, you... Um, you guys are so blessed. I mean, Mark Kirkendall is, uh, th- there's nobody I would rather have by my side in any situation I can think of than Mark Kirkendall. And um, we've been in a lot of situations. Uh, so I'm the dead weight of that deal, let me tell you that. All right, so here's what we're going to do. Go to your Bibles, uh, to First Peter chapter 2. We've been, as a church across all our campuses, we've been uh, walking through uh, this letter from Peter. Oh, yeah. By the way, my wife Leslie is back here. If you haven't, if you haven't met our family, that's that's Leslie. Uh, she just came in, and then my son Jay and my youngest daughter Catherine. My oldest daughter's in Lubbock um, at at uh, at school, but um, that's our that's our family. So, all right. So, First Peter chapter two. Well, so here's the deal. Peter, he's one of the apostles of Jesus. In fact, when you read through the Gospels, what you find is that Peter is actually, he's the leader of his peers. He's the, he's the guy. I mean, so, so Peter's the, the one that will um, always speak long before he thinks. He is the one that will act before he considers the consequences. And you find a picture of Peter through the Gospels. And then what happens, the end of John 21, you guys have heard about it. He, he is denied Jesus. He's at the lowest place of his whole life. He, he quits being an apostle, quits being a disciple, goes back to fishing, and Jesus comes and finds him all over again in the very same place that he called him the first time, and he restores Peter, and he loves him. And then Peter, uh, then you open up the book of Acts, just days later. And the Holy Spirit comes upon him and he begins to preach and lead and he's the catalyst of this thing that we're still doing today, even right now here, called the church. And so this is Peter and then he, um, this, is, this is later in his life and he's an, he's an older man and the church is facing a transition. Uh, they're facing a transition because uh, all of the apostles at this point um, have gone to the grave. Uh, they've been martyred. The church is being persecuted. The emperor Nero has set a campaign against these ones that follow Christ. And so Peter's writing to a group of people. They're, they're scattered around this area called Asia Minor. And they're wondering, well, what's this next chapter look like? 
And Peter's wanting them to know that, listen, I know you, I know you feel insecure. I know you don't know what tomorrow holds. I know you're worried about um, finding work and feeding your family. And you're worried about very earthly and real things that we all need to worry about. But I want you to know this. You've never been more secure than you are right now. Because your security is not in Peter, it's not in Paul, it's not in any of the apostles, it's in Jesus Christ who died, was buried for three days, and rose from the dead. And now he's seated at the right hand of the Father who loves you. And he wants them to know there's not anything, there's nothing in this world that separates you from that. And so Peter's Writing, and you got to hear chapter 1 as, as Mark walked through chapter 1. The first part of it is all that God has done. And the second part of it is, okay, now, what does that mean? How do we reorient life based upon who we are in Jesus Christ? And so as we open up chapter 2, the, the beginning of chapter 2 is actually a continuation of everything that he's been saying in chapter 1, specifically there towards the end of chapter 1. Last week you talked about uh, at the end of chapter 1, all the things that God's Word is and God's Word does. And so now he's going to talk about how that Word, that, that, that God's Word, that, that seed that was born inside of us, what does it look like when it begins to grow? Well, I want to start this way. There's a, um, there's a book that came out a few years ago, and the title of the book's called Bowling Alone. It was by a guy named Robert Putnam. And... Um, he was looking at the decline in community life in America over the last 25 years. See if, see if some of these statistics uh, don't ring true in your experience. He said that attending club meetings, um, which is a thing that's not a big deal in this part of the country, but it's down 58%. That family dinners are down 43%. Having friends over down 55%. So it's, it is a groundbreaking book. He did all of this new research, and he showed how that we are increasingly becoming disconnected from family and friends and neighbors and our, and our democratic structures and, and how we connect with each other. And so he did this survey. He, did, he, he surveyed 500,000 people, which is an, a massive survey. And he found this, we sign fewer petitions, we belong to fewer organizations, we know our neighbors less, we meet with friends less frequency, we even socialize with our families less often. And then he says this, we're even bowling alone. More Americans are bowling more than ever before, but they're not bowling in leagues. They're bowling alone. And he shows how the changes in the way that we work, our family structures, age, suburban life, social media, Netflix, all the other factors contribute to this design. So what I would say this morning is that what Putnam observes is actually not anything that's new. It just looks different today. See, ever since our first parents were banished from the garden, our life has been one long journey of loneliness. Separated from God and separated from each other. In fact, Paul says it in Ephesians chapter 2, he says it this way, remember, remember that you were separated from Christ. 
You were alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenant of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now Christ Jesus, who you once were far off from, you've been brought near by his blood. See, I don't know if that resonates with you or not. I don't know if you sit here this morning and you know what, your life is perfectly content or if you have been looking to all kinds of other things to fill up that space. Peter's going to give us some great encouragement. So I want you to look here. uh, We're going to look at the uh, first eight verses of 1 Peter chapter 2. It begins this way. It says, so put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. Like newborn infants, long for the pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up into salvation, if indeed you haven't tasted that the Lord is good. So in three verses, Peter's going to use two metaphors. And the first one, in verse 1, is this this image of of taking off or or put away. So to put away something means to take off something, to take it off like a garment. And then he's going to speak to the readers as their newborn infants. If you remember chapter 1 and in verse 3 and in verse 23, he said that the readers have been born again. So if you put these two things together, Peter's talking about putting off your old life and beginning again with a new life of being born again. So, so you're no longer, here's what you no longer are. You're no longer mature adults, wise in the ways of the world. You're a newborn infant, having been born again. And and what Peter's saying is you've got to grow up all over again. They're beginning again at living life. See, the natural ways of the old life, that's a part, are not a part of the new life. We come into the world. We we have this first birth and second birth. And we come into the world in our first birth with a goal of looking out for number one, because that's the way that we were nurtured by the world around us. Peter makes that case at the beginning of Ephesians chapter 2. So a picture of how the world teaches us to look out for ourselves. Jesus illustrates this in Luke chapter 12. There's this parable there. And uh, he speaks about a rich landowner, and his land was fruitful and it, it produced abundance. And so the rich landowner sitting there at the end of this bumper crop, and he's wondering what to do with all of his abundance. And if you lived in the first century at that time, you would know that there were people around him that that wouldn't have fared so well, and there were people around him that had great need. But what he does, and when he says, hey, listen, I wonder what I'm going to do with all this, he decides he's going to tear down his old barns, and he's going to build bigger ones. And his goal is to get all that he can, to store all that he can, to look out for himself, because his goal, it says in the text, was to relax, eat, drink, and be married. And Jesus says he's a hedonist, which means that the pursuit of pleasure and comfort in this life are the highest goals. So let me ask you this morning, what's the highest goal in your life? If you were to answer the question, man, if only this, well, then, what would that be? Well, Jesus says about this kind of man that he tells the parable of, he calls him a fool. He says, listen, you're laying up treasure for yourself in this world. And when you do that, you make yourself poor in the kingdom of God. 
one of the ways that the world nurtures us and how to get ahead in life, it's summed up in verse 1. So look at how it is. It's actually, it's five words, but it's actually a list of three, and you know this by the alls. So there's all malice, and then there's all deceit, hypocrisy, and envy, and then there's all slander. When he talks about malice, here's what he's talking about. It's this inward disposition. It's how you view the world, and it's, it's, a, it's a view of, uh, of hatred or, or um, an attitude in life that says, look, everybody's in my way, everybody's keeping me down, everybody's out to get me. People in this life are seen as obstacles to your happiness. You ever have those thoughts? Hey, listen, we're not immune to this. This is why Peter says, hey, put these things away. They're natural to all of us. I can... I have a list, I have an enemy's list of all the people that keep me from being happy in this world. Peter says, time to burn the list. Secondly, he says, all deceit, hypocrisy, and envy. These are, so, so while malice is your disposition, these would be the rules of engagement that we learned from the world. It involves our, our thinking, our logical reasoning. It, if this is how the world works, then this is how I must engage the world. One of those is deceit. That means I need to lie, I need to steal, I need to cheat, I need to do whatever it takes to make sure I protect myself. Secondly is hypocrisy. It's this old theater word in the Greek. It means to put on a mask. It means to pretend in the presence of others. It means to pretend to care for others when, in fact, we're only manipulating to get what we want. The third one's envy. This is the epitome of the hedonist life. Everywhere you look, someone's happier, more successful, more content. And you resent others for what they have. You become bitter because of what you don't have. And the hedonist life is a life that is always half full at the same time We use the garments of deceit and hypocrisy to create envy in others whenever we can, don't we? In fact, social media, probably the single greatest tool mankind has invented in this area. I was dropping Jay, my son, off at uh, Robert E. Lee, Uh, which was last fall. And I dropped him off, and then I was headed back home. It was in the morning. It was about 8 o'clock, and I'm sitting at a light at Copeland Road in the Loop. And I'm there waiting to turn left, and I'm sitting, and the car next to me is at the light, and they're, they're going to go straight. And I look over, and it is this woman, and she's decided that this is the perfect time to take a selfie. And so what she does is she begins to take this selfie. So she takes the selfie, and then I can see her, and she looks at the camera. She doesn't like that one. So she looks at a different angle, and she takes it, and she doesn't like that one, and then she looks at another one, and then she adjusts her blouse, and she takes another one, and she takes another one, and she fixes her hair, and she takes another one, and she took no less than 20 selfies to find just the right one that put out to the world, look how pretty I am today. It only took 20 pictures, by the way. I mean, listen, I'm telling you, when the light hits me just right, I'm pretty handsome. It's the deceit, it's the hypocrisy so that we can, so that what she's really hoping is, man, I'm going to put that out there in one of two things. One, that everybody's going to like it and I'll feel esteemed. Or two, everybody's going to look and think I'm the prettiest one and they're going to feel bad about themselves. 
that's how we do. Then he says all slander and our dispositions, malice, our engagement is deceit and hypocrisy and envy. And then our actions, they only lead us to slander. In our pursuit to rise to the top, to get ahead, to look out for number one, then not only must we ascend to the highest place that we can, but we also must make sure we knock everybody else down. It's why we gossip, it's why we lie, it's why we celebrate, whether secretly or publicly, the failure of others. Let me ask you this. What is your response? When the others around you, maybe those that you envy, maybe those you don't like, when failure comes into their life, what is your response? so tempting and easy and natural to say, well, you know, they finally got what's coming to them. My mom would say, the chickens have come home to roost, whatever that means. Right? Peter, he's reminding his readers, hey, you've left this world. And, and its ways, you've left it all behind. There's no longer... You no longer have a place of residence into the world you were born into. You don't have a permanent address here. You've been born again by God. They have begun again. Now they're newborn infants. And the disposition and the rules of engagement and the actions of our life are completely turned around. That's why at the end of chapter 1, Peter is going to give those four imperatives. Remember, he's been... Talking about those the last couple of weeks. These exhortations, these, okay, now, if this is true and it is, now then this. It's, it's, it's what life looks like when you've been ransomed by God's grace through the precious blood of His Son. Remember verse 13, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. The next one is, is be holy as God is holy. We're to look to him, our father. He's our, we are his children. Verse 17, conduct yourselves with, with fear throughout the time of your We live in, in reverence and awe and worship of God and the things of the world don't hold our ultimate affection anymore. We hold everything loosely so we can fully grip the grace of God. And in verse 22, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. Instead of the intense and constant pursuit of looking out for number one, the goal of our lives change, right? It's not the love of self that drives us any longer. It's the love for others. That's why Paul will say in Philippians chapter 2, don't do anything from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility, count others more significant than yourself. Let each of us look not to our own interests, but to the interests of others. So having been born again, being infants, children, we're to grow up all over again. We start all over. We grow to maturity as children of our Father. And here's this, why it's so important that believers spend time in God's Word. In, in and it's why the more time you spend in God's word, the more you come to grips with the reality that God is different than I am. 
In fact, there are many places in God's word that seem to run in the opposite direction of our common sense. For us to grow up into the likeness of our Father, to look like His Son, Jesus, we must get to know Him. The way we know Him is through His word. Our diet must change. Verse 3 says, listen, if you've been born again, you've tasted the Lord's goodness. You know that there are sweeter delights than what the world offers you. Crave the milk of the word. The more you drink, the more you want, and the table of the world looks less appealing. And the idea is that, listen, once you've been born again, it means you've been given a new heart and a new heart. This is all the covenant promises um, that we were promised. And this new heart in you is created a love for your Savior. So, so Peter said, look, see him, look at him, savor him, taste his word and see that it's good. A famous Scottish preacher named Thomas Chalmers. This is one famous sermon. I don't know any of the other ones. He lived in the uh, 16th century. But he said it this way. The, the sermon is called the expulsive power of a new affection. He says, seldom do any of our habits or flaws disappear by a process of extinction through reasoning or by the sheer force of our will. Do you hear that? Our habits, our flaws, don't disappear by extinction. They don't just go away. They don't go away through our reasoning, through our mental determination, through the sheer force of our will, but what cannot be destroyed, he says, can be dispossessed or can be replaced. And The only way to replace the heart of an old affection is by the expulsive power if you're spending all your time trying to tell yourself what not to do, what not to love, Chalmers would say, Peter would say, that's not the way to spend your energy. It is to fall in love with something greater. There are two things I've had to give up in my life over the past couple of years. Uh, Diet Coke and chocolate. Because both of those things are triggers uh, for migraines for me. And so they're hard to give up. I used to love Diet Coke. I mean, it's like this guilt-free indulgence or whatever it is. And uh, rat poison. And chocolate. I mean, in chocolate, I mean, that's like the ultimate comfort food. There's nothing like chocolate on the planet. But for me... It means migraines. And so it really came down to this. Chocolate does not taste as good as a migraine's misery. It's not worth it. So I found some new vices. Uh, vanilla ice cream. And I dig it. Now, there are other issues with that, but that's not this sermon, all right? So, so, so here's the deal, though. After all, I don't crave chocolate anymore. In fact, chocolate tastes like a migraine to me. It literally tastes like a migraine. I have 
become so sensitive also to artificial sweetener, I can detect it in anything. And the reason I can is because it tastes like a migraine. It's what Peter's saying. Listen, God's word is our new diet. God's word's the sweet milk we crave. It's the vanilla ice cream. The psalmist says it is sweeter than honey. Your goal is not to walk out of here in all of your bootstrap energy with this list of things you're not going to do anymore or love anymore. What your goal is to make Jesus your new affection. And we do that through his word. And his word leads us to gaze that's what Peter said in the book chapter 1. The precious blood of Jesus. So we're born again. We need to mature. Peter says to grow up into salvation. Now here's, here's what Peter means by that. In, in chapter 1, verse 23, the end of the last chapter, he tells us that we've been born again, not, not of a perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. In other words, the new life we have has been, that we've been born into, it's indestructible, it's eternal. We have a new DNA. We've been born again into the life of Jesus. So we're to grow up into the likeness of Jesus, our, our salvation. When Jesus was born into the world, when the eternal Son of God stepped out of eternity into history and took on flesh, he was fully man and he was fully God. He was not less human because of the incarnation. Actually, we find he's more human. The life of Jesus... The humanity that he embodied was always what being human was supposed to be before humanity was stained with sin. Jesus' life is the picture for us of what it means to truly be human. It's, he's our salvation. So you look to the Gospels, you read God's Word, crave the influence of God's revelation, we grow up into our salvation, and the new life we've been born into becomes the life we live in the midst of the world. So the Christian life, it gets turned upside down. It gets turned outward in love to those around us. Now, let me give you three passages really quick because I want to make this point. Two of them are from the Gospels, and one of them is from uh, the letter, first letter by John, okay? The, the first one... Uh, is, is Matthew chapter 10. You, you know this story, so I'll just I'll rehearse it for you, but I want to get to what it is that Jesus says is the answer. And then the next one is what Jesus says is the answer. Listen to this. So Matthew 10, Jesus, he's teaching the disciples about what they can expect in the world as his followers. And so he paints this picture, and it, it's, it's a painting where uh, their life of following him is going to be out of step with the world around them. And so because of that, he says, hey, look, the world, I got some good news and I got some bad news. Which do you want first? And he says, hey, look, guys, the, the world is, is, is going to hate you. 
The world is going to view you as an enemy. The world is going to view you as a threat. In fact, the life of Jesus is a threat to the world. His perfect humanity, you know what it does? It exposes the broken humanity in all of us. We look to him and we realize, oh, that's how I'm broken. And the truth is we won't stand for it. That's why we crucified him. You want a summary of the trial of Jesus? Verse 1 of this chapter. Malice, deceit, hypocrisy, envy, slander. It summed up the world's response to Jesus. And it sums up the world's response to his followers. And Jesus says it this way, Matthew 10, 39. He says, but be encouraged, because here's the deal. Whoever finds his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. If you are clinging to life in this world, you're going to lose it. If you are clinging to Jesus, you're going to find it, which you were always meant to be. Well, then you go six chapters later, Matthew chapter 16, fascinating passage. Mark also records it in Mark chapter 8. Jesus takes his disciples, Caesarea Philippi. Caesarea Philippi is like taking um, your disciples to Vegas, okay? Because what happens in Caesarea Philippi stays in Caesarea Philippi. And he goes there, and in the midst of this absolutely pagan, I mean, it's, it is, it's like the Walmart of gods. And he says to them, he says, who do you say that I am? And Peter, he finally announces, you're the Christ, you're the son of the living God. So bingo, that's it. In fact, Jesus says, Peter, you're blessed. Flesh and blood didn't reveal this to you. My father who is in heaven revealed that. The problem is Peter didn't fully understand what he was saying, not, not fully. Because the next scene Jesus, they're headed towards Jerusalem. He tells them that he's going to go there. He's going to die on a cross, lay in a tomb for three days, be resurrected to new life, and he tells his disciples that's the plan. You know what Peter says? No, it's not. can never be the plan. May it never be. Then you know what Jesus says back? He says, get behind me, Satan. You're a hindrance to me. Because you're not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Within seven verses, Peter goes from a genius to an idiot. From God's words to Satan's words. Because he didn't fully understand. He thought being with Jesus meant glory now. He thought Jesus was the lottery ticket to his life. He thought salvation meant having your best life now. To which Jesus says, as if they didn't hear it the first time, he says it again. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Same words. If the goal in your life is to live in step with the world around you, you're trying to save your life. That's what he says. You think salvation's now. If your goal in this life is all the glory you can get now, you're trying to save your life. You think your salvation happens now. Jesus says if you're trying to save your life, you're going to lose it. If you lose your life, 
And we'll talk about how to do that. And how do you lose your life? Then you're going to find it. Growing into salvation is the process of losing your life. It is growing into Jesus. Now, one last passage, and I'm going to move on. What time we get at? We get out here at 1230? Is that right, Mark? Great. All right. Buckle in, all right? Um, no, I, I, we're almost done. Well, we're over halfway through. 1 John 4, 11 and 12. You know this passage. The passage, God is love. Ask any eight-year-old in the United States to finish the sentence, God is, and they'll say love. And then John goes on and says, Beloved, if God so loved us, and he does, we also ought to love one another. No one's ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us, and his love is perfected in us. The passage is one of those places where I realize the way I think and the way God thinks is entirely different. Because I expect verse 11 to say this, Beloved, if God so loved us, and he does, then we also ought to, and then I think it should say, love God back. I mean, if God loves us, then we ought to spend our lives trying to love God back. Now, John's not saying we don't love God. He's not saying that. But you know how he says that we love God? If God so loves us, then we in turn love one another. The way we love God back is that we love each other. One of the greatest ways my children can love me is to care for the needs of their brother or sister. I think, man, that, I love that. Don't sit around and treat them terribly and then come try to sit in my lap and tell me how much you love me. It's very hard for me to hear that. This is growing up in salvation. In verse 12, says, when we do this, the invisible God becomes visible to the world around us. Now, look at what that leads into next. So we're going to fly through these next verses. Mark can pick up the pieces next week. So beginning verse 4, as you come to him, so Peter's all over the map on metaphors here, okay? First we're taking stuff off, then we're babies, then there's milk. Now we're living stones. So as you come to him, Jesus, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood to offer Spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. As it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe. But for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, a stone of stumbling, a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word. This is another way to say they don't believe as they were destined to. Verse 4, you, you come to him. So he's a living stone, Jesus is, rejected by men. But in the sight of God, he's chosen and he's precious. You know what that means? It means he lost his life 
and he gained life. And then in verse 5, it says that, so we are like living stones. We are like him, having come to him. We're being built up as a spiritual house, one, a holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices to God through Jesus. And then in verses 6 through 8, Peter brings the Old Testament in. This was God's plan from the beginning. Jesus is the cornerstone, chosen and precious. Those who believe in him won't be put to shame. Even if the world rejects you, in the sight of God, you're chosen and precious. This is a place of honor. But to those that reject him, he's a stumbling block. Peter's quoting Isaiah 28 here. And the Israelite people in Isaiah 28, they weren't trusting God, they were trusting themselves. They were looking out for number one. The gods they were trusting in were the promises of their best life now. So bigger storehouses, more luxuries. They become intoxicated with the world, and God says, look, I'm tearing all that down. Nothing's going to stand. But in its place, I'm laying a new foundation, an eternal foundation, and in His grace, He offered them a place. He invited them to be part of His Son. They wanted to be their own builders. They wanted to be the architects of their own lives. And every life built on your own wants and your own desires will come crumbling perilously down. It just will. That's why verse 7 The honor is for you who believe. Another translation, if you have the NIV, it says, you who believe see the preciousness of this stone. So Let me show you how verses 4 and 5 work in the flow. In the Old Testament, the presence of the Lord, it was in the garden, it was in the tabernacle, it was in the temple. Then you open up the New Testament, and John chapter 1 says that the glory of the Lord has come. The word of God was made flesh and dwelt among us. He tabernacles among us. That, That we've seen his glory, the glory as the only son from the Father, full of grace and truth. The invisible God became visible. He took on flesh. He lived among us so that we could see his glory. We could glimpse the better, truer humanity that we could know him. So verse 4 and 5, Jesus the living stone, he's the cornerstone. We are living stones built up in a spiritual house, the dwelling place of God, the church, the believers built together, supporting each other, held in place by Jesus. And he says, we're a holy priesthood. We're the new priesthood. You want to know where that, so, so in, in Genesis chapter 2, there's the garden, there's Adam, and he's there, and he's, you know, it's a sanctuary, it's a temple. Adam's set in the middle and given the high privilege, and it says to work it and to keep it. And you know what those words mean? They're the very same words used in Leviticus to describe the roles of the priest. It means to serve and to guard. There's an old story about a Spartan king. And this monarch had come to visit him, and he was boasting about the walls of Sparta. I mean, you see it, right? Gerard Butler standing there, his wife tougher than any of the other men. I mean, so I've heard. I didn't see that movie, but don't don't go see 300. It's terrible. 
But the visiting king, this monarch, was looking around. He said, hey, listen, I don't, I don't see any walls around your city. And he said, we... Oh, he said, where are these renowned walls of Sparta that you speak of? And the Spartan king pointed to his army and he said, these are the walls of Sparta. Every man of them. The image of 1 Peter of a building. It's not a wall of defense, but the idea remains that each of us are living stones set by God in the body of Christ. Paul says it this way, the work of the ministry, building up of the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of faith and the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood. You hear all these things? It's the same thing Peter's saying. We're to grow up in every way into him who's our head, into Christ from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint for which it is equipped, when each part's working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. So how do we do that? What are the spiritual sacrifices? How do we lose our life and gain Jesus? The spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. You know what it is? Love one another. The last thing he told us at the end of chapter 1, you've been born again. Love one another. You know, there's 40 passages, more than 40 passages in the New Testament. The one another passages. Love one another. Outdo one another in showing honor. Don't pass judgment on one another. Welcome one another. Live in harmony with one another, instruct one another, greet one another with a holy kiss. Anybody do that today? Wait on one another, comfort one another, bear one another's burdens, be kind to one another, submit to one another, do not lie to one another, encourage one another, seek to do uh, good to one another, stir one another up to love and good deeds. Don't speak evil against one another. Don't grumble against one another. Confess your sins to one another. Pray for one another. Show hospitality to one another. That's why Charles Spurgeon says, look, God doesn't need your service. What could you do for God? God doesn't need your service, but our neighbors do. You want to know what your spiritual sacrifice is? You give your life away those around you. That's how you lose your life. That's how you gain your life. It's what you were created for. It's why you were gifted by the Holy Spirit. You were given a gift. You know what? The gift's not for you. It's for those around you. The only way to use the gift that you've been given is to serve those around you. Here's a statistic, then I'll close. 90% of new members will stay in their congregation if three things happen. One, they can articulate their faith. So I, I, I know what this church believes about what who Jesus is and what he did and why he did it. You can articulate. The second is, is if you belong to a small group or a Bible study. 
that at some point during the week, people are looking for you to show up somewhere. And the third, have four to eight close friendships in the congregation. Here's the litmus test. You want to know if you'll be here nine months from now. This is it. Can you articulate your faith? Have you, have you said, you know what, I want to be in a small group. I don't like small groups, but I know they're good, so I should be in one. Or you go to a Bible study. So you know what, Tuesday mornings, 6.30 or whenever it is that you go, so I'm going to go do that. One morning, Monday night, I'm going to binge watch Netflix. I'm going to get up the next morning. I'm going to sit around in a group of guys open God's word together. A group of cows open God's word together. And then you know what? I'm going to cultivate four to eight close friendships. I'm going to do more than just stalk the people I see on Sunday morning on Facebook. I'm going to get to know them. Have coffee with them. Play poker with them. Or bridge or knit or whatever. I don't know what you do stuff together. Love each other. So in the middle of the night, the world comes crashing down, I have somebody to call. In the middle of the night, when they have their world's crashing down, I pick up the phone. That is our spiritual sacrifice. Give your life away. Want to know who you are? The newborn infant in Christ. That's who you are. You're not looking out for number one anymore. Every man, woman, and child in this room needs to be very good. Love all of them. Dwight Moody. The old pastor in Chicago and uh there was this prominent Chicago citizen who, when the idea of church and membership and all those came up, he said, you know, look, I, b I believe I can be just as good a Christian outside the church as I can be inside of it. That's what he said. Hey, listen, I've said those words. Well, Moody didn't say anything. Instead, he moved to the fireplace Blazing against the winter outside, removed one burning coal and placed it on the hearth. The two men sat together and watched the ember die out. I see. That's, that's it. This is what you were born into. Welcome to the family. If you would, would you bow with me? I'm going to have... Drew, come up. We're going to be ready to sing. We're going to distribute the elements and uh, take communion together. And then, uh, and then we're going to eat some more food at the back of the room. Let's pray. Father, thanks for the time in your word this morning. I even in the time that we spent this morning. Father, and I pray that you were gracious to these hearers to be able to 
hear you and to see you and to taste your goodness. These words you revealed to Peter and you've preserved through the ages. So that, Father, we can this morning read them. Be nourished by them. Just just as the first readers were in the first century. Father, this is no less relevant. Father, above all these things, I pray that you would You would knit to our hearts and our minds what accords with your truth. Everything else, I pray, would just be burned away. So, Father, your word would not return void. And for anybody here this morning that hasn't come to the place of saying, you know what? This this looking out for number one, this, this trying to save my own life, not working. Father, I pray you would grant them faith to look to your Son, believe in Him. Father, in that moment, to be indwelt by your Spirit, to be cleansed of sin, and to know what it is to be your child. Father, only you can do that. And so I pray that you would, and we pray this the only way we can, name of your son Jesus thanks again for listening to the podcast today we hope that you were blessed and encouraged and if you have any questions or comments we want you to let us know simply send your thoughts to questions at Bethelbible.com thanks for spending time with us and be sure to join us next week on the Bethel Bible podcast